0: So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 13. We finally reached the last chapters of of Hebrews. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Now, when times get tough, people get squeezed. And when you get squeezed... The question is, what comes out? Is it sweet? Is it sour or bitter? Smelly? (laughs) When times get tough, we get squeezed, and times have been tough lately. We've seen a lot of people get squeezed in this country and around the world for that matter. And the question is, what comes out? Well, here's a few of the things I've seen in terms of how people have responded when times have gotten tough. I've seen them hoarding toilet paper and other scarce resources. They've taken more than they needed, and as a result, there hasn't been enough for many others causing shortages. What else has come out when people have been squeezed well they've stored up wealth i've noticed this, uh, especially not just recently, but after the 2008 financial crisis which hit this area pretty hard. It was around the same time that there were a lot of zombie apocalypse shows and movies that were popular there was talk about reaching peak oil. And there was a lot of concern about the stability of the economy and the security of the markets. And so people started buying gold and silver. In fact, during that time, people on our street here were talking and sharing info about where to order precious metals. And a lot of the local neighbors settled on this this one online seller who disguised, it just so happened, the orders that they sent, the packages for security reasons, as plumbing parts they were kind of posing as a a plumbing retailer. I mean, what else is so heavy, right, when you get a package that heavy, full of heavy metals? Well, our local delivery man at the time picked up on it and was like, what's up with everyone on this street all of a sudden buying plumbing fixtures from the same place? What else comes out when people get squeezed? Well, they get Cranky and angry and suspicious, and they bicker and they fight with strangers and with family and friends. We've seen it on social media, right? Not to mention families who no longer have Thanksgiving together because they've been busy bickering over politics. Stress, fear, difficulty, they make us cranky and angry, and we're less patient and we're less understanding. What else comes out when we're squeezed? Well, we look for cheap pleasures. Thinking of the 2008 financial crisis again, everyone was wondering what a secure investment would be. Word on the street was to check out counter market investments. These are commodities that go up when everything else goes down. Things like alcohol, cigarettes, uh, chocolate, pornography. In tough times, people are looking for some quick comfort, for some momentary happiness to help them forget their larger troubles. So question for us, is all of this how God's people react when we get squeezed? Hopefully not. But is it how we respond? Well, if we do, then we haven't fully grown into our identity as God's people yet. We don't fully realize yet who we are or or to whom we belong. We don't fully recognize or believe the good news shared with us in today's passage. In verse 5, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. If we can fully get that good news into our hearts and our lives, it changes what comes out of us when we get squeezed. And so instead, what comes out is more like what we read in verse 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mortals do to me? All this was very close to home for the original recipients of Hebrews, right? They were being squeezed. They were being persecuted for their faith. Some of them had already been carted off to prison. Some were being mistreated in other ways, and it was causing their faith to be tested and for some of them to waver and to consider renouncing their faith. And so the author of Hebrews addressed this letter to them, which was also a sermon uh, to be read to them, to encourage them, to strengthen them in their faith. And now as we reach the end of the letter, chapter 13, it's going to apply their faith to how they're supposed to live when they're being squeezed. And what is the foundational quality, the the innermost quality of God's people supposed to be when we're squeezed? What comes out of us if we really have faith in the God we say we believe in? Well, it's the opposite of finding our security in our financial capital and resources and what those can purchase. It's instead finding our security in our relational and social capital when god's people are squeezed we lean into relationships we find our security our resilience our strength in relationships that's why our passage begins keep loving one another as brothers and sisters The Greek word translated keep loving here is Philadelphia, brotherly love, sisterly love. Maintain, keep up, brotherly love, sisterly love, Hebrews exhorts us. Treat each other, in other words, like family. That's been our vision, right, during this pandemic for our church, that we would treat one another like family that we would make sure that we all support one another in getting through these hard times like a family would. Let me ask you, as as you look around at the other people here this morning, or for those of you who are on Zoom, you look at the different squares on Zoom, do you realize that this really is your family? And that when times get tough, these are the people who you get to be family with. Keep loving one another, the author of Hebrews says. How? As family, as brothers and sisters. Relational resources, social capital. That's what God's people rely on. It's what we depend on. It's what we lean into when we're squeezed. Because we're family. Now, in the rest of the passage, the author of Hebrews is going to unpack and Four very practical ways what it looks like to treat one another like family to prioritize social capital over financial capital and i'd like to spend most of our time looking at these four the first one is hospitality some translations say hospitality to strangers and some just hospitality i don't think hospitality to strangers is the most accurate translation because the point of the Greek word being translated hospitality here isn't that it's hospitality to people you don't know and never have met before, though it certainly includes such people, but rather it's that this is hospitality beyond the people you naturally have in your home, beyond close family and good friends. It's hospitality that extends out To others who are not so close and natural to be hospitable to. And this hospitality is not talking just about having a few people over for dinner. It's much bigger than that. You see, back in Bible times, there were no Hampton Inns or Marriott's. There were inns, but many of them doubled as brothels. And they were dangerous places. There were no reliable locks on your room. So they were frequent targets for thieves. And so most people preferred to stay in homes. And when they had to travel, they would draw on networks and connections of friends and extended family to find a place to stay or or just count on the hospitality of a stranger. So hospitality was a big deal. It was common, it was important, And it would involve putting up with, or sorry, putting up and hosting um, a a friend of a friend or uh, somebody, uh, sometimes a complete stranger. And because the early church was very much on the move due to both persecution and the mission of sharing the gospel, there were frequent opportunities to put people up and to put up with people. Sometimes for a few days, sometimes for longer. And this meant feeding them and often supplying what they needed if they were continuing on in their journey after they stayed with you. So hospitality wasn't as simple as making some tea and putting out the nice doilies. It was much more than that. My daughter Sarah experienced biblical hospitality recently This past fall she began college uh, far away near Vancouver in Canada, and she didn't know anyone there. But it's very near the place that she lived until she was four years old. And some friends of ours there who she doesn't remember, but who uh, knew her as a young child, they picked her up at the airport, they took her out for dinner, they put her out overnight, they bought her some odds and ends she forgot to pack. And then they took her to college the next day and helped her move into her dorm room. They were like family to her. Because they understand that followers of Jesus treat one another like family. And we as a church could tell many stories of, of how other CBCers have treated us like family, right? Right? A number of you have told me stories of times that you were sick or you needed help and how people from this church took you to the doctor, uh, bought you f- brought you food every day for a period of time, stayed with you through the night, fixed or replaced your computer, helped you fix up your house. The list goes on. We've given each other cars. We've shared vacation homes. We've helped pay tuition bills because we're seeking to be like family to one another. Imperfectly, right? But we're trying and hopefully we're growing. And what this means is that often we don't need to rely on financial capital because we already have social capital. Like Ann and I didn't need to shell out hundreds of dollars for transportation for Sarah and for a hotel in Vancouver because we had social capital instead. People who are like family to us. And so God's people, when they're squeezed, they don't hoard for themselves. We don't hoard for ourselves and say, what can I or how can I how can my nuclear family get through this? No, we come together and we say, how can we all get through this together? Then the author of Hebrews throws in this intriguing line. You know, by offering hospitality, some have entertained angels of God and not realized it. This is likely a reference to Abraham and Sarah who, who uh, once entertained um, three visitors. And if you know the story, these three turned out to be heavenly messengers. Others in the Bible, like Samson's parents, had similar experiences. In fact, Ann and I have had an experience along these lines. Maybe you have an angel story too, some of you. Here's ours in a nutshell. We were on one of our very first dates. We were living in Washington, D.C., and I packed a picnic lunch, and we were going to take a walk to a nearby park. And as we're walking, this guy comes up to us and asks us for money. He says he's hungry. And so we offer him some of our food from our picnic. And he puts two and two together. He realizes we're on a date, and um, he's very touched. And he starts, like, prophesying over us and and saying, you two are going to get married, and you're going to have four children. And to be honest, it felt a little bit awkward at the time, right? This is, like, our third date, (laughs) Um, we're just getting to know each other, but later, as it began to come true, we looked back and we said, what was that? Was that an angel or something? What, was that God giving us encouragement and confidence to pursue our relationship? Well, I'll certainly tell you, looking back, that experience, strange as it was, was more than worth the couple sandwiches that we were prepared to give up to be hospitable to that guy. The point is, hospitality all depends on your attitude. It can feel like an imposition and like a sacrifice. But if you're open to it, there can be surprising blessings in store. You may well wind up receiving from God more than you gave. Okay, let's move to the second practical way that we can show brotherly and sisterly love. The second is to treat those in prison and those being mistreated as if you were in that situation yourself. Which means what? It means visiting them. It means caring for their needs and helping them and in the process, sharing in their shame and in their suffering. Back in that time, prisons were not generally places of punishment, but rather places of detention until your punishment was decided and carried out. They were temporary, but that didn't make them any less horrible. Your court case could drag on for months or for years. You haven't even been found innocent or guilty yet. Maybe you're innocent, but you're in what was often a filthy, dank, cold, dangerous place. Often there was um, little, if any, food provided, No medical care. The guards were often hardened men who abused their prisoners. And so prisoners were dependent very often on family and friends to feed, clothe, and protect them while they were in prison. And so the immediate thing on the mind of the author of Hebrews here is probably Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith and are awaiting trial. Or, Or maybe they're being mistreated in some other way because of their faith. And Hebrews is saying... Hey, they are your family. Remember them, help them, treat them like it was you facing this. Don't go on with your life and forget them. And don't shy away from them because others are looking at them with suspicion or scorn. Identify with them, visit them, stick up for them, even if it gets you abused or scorned in the process, which could happen. And you know, the early church was known for doing this exact thing. They would sometimes even stay with fellow prisoners in prison to try to offer protection from abuse, to attend to their medical needs, to provide food and company. But the early believers didn't limit their care to fellow believers who were being persecuted. Rather, they extended it out from them to the inmate next to them. This was an opportunity to witness, to to spread the love and care of of Jesus. So much so that caring for those in prison came to be considered normal Christianity in the first centuries. Just as an example, Ignatius, who was an early Christian leader uh, from the early second century, he wrote a letter about some false teachers warning about these, these false teachers. And here's how Ignatius argues that these false teachers are not to be listened to or followed. They have no concern, these false teachers, for love. None for the widow, none for the orphan, none for the mistreated, none for the prisoners, nor for the one who has been released from iron, none for the hungry or thirsty. Such, Ignatius concludes, teach what is contrary to the mind of Christ. So again, when we're squeezed, how do we respond? Look out for ourselves or care for those in worse straits than we are? Do we love each other as brothers and sisters? Third practical way to show such love for those who are married and for all of us who know people who are married. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. What we need to know about first century culture at this time, especially in a place like Rome, is that it was not uncommon for a, a Roman household head to be married, but also to have escorts and lovers for a little excitement on the side. And then to visit the beds of his slave girls and boys to gratify daily desires. And this was all fairly accepted in first century Roman culture. And so for followers of Jesus to say, let's be faithful to our spouse and exclusive to our spouse and keep that relationship pure, that was profoundly countercultural and absolutely what God expected, and it still is today. So let me ask you, when you feel squeezed, when you're tired, when you're lonely late at night, when you're hurting, are you ever tempted to seek pleasure elsewhere? Obviously, cheating on your spouse or with a married person is a big no-no. No. But then Hebrews throws in that God will judge all the sexually immoral, whether it's porn or a boyfriend or girlfriend if you're single or whatever else, because among Jesus' followers, brotherly and sisterly love means that we treat other men and women with purity like brothers and sisters. We learn with God's help to control our desires. To honor and enjoy sexuality only within the confines of marriage. Again, it's profoundly culture- uh, countercultural. It was then, it still is today. And it's all the tougher when we're being squeezed. When we're lonely, when we're tired, when we're hurting. For the first hearers of their letter, maybe their spouse was in prison. Maybe they felt all alone and vulnerable. And there were temptations. But what they really needed wasn't a night of passion to momentarily escape. What they needed really was a family to come around them in a healthy way and to be a support with them and for them. Well, then lastly, the fourth practical way we're to live out loving one another like family has to do with money. Verse 5 keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, which right there just cuts out the whole basis for capitalism. Sorry to say. I'm not commenting on capitalism. I'm just saying, right? Like um, Black Friday's coming. (laughs) Um, But historically, the church has been so good about calling people out on the sex one not ready for the benediction yet. Sorry. (laughs) We'll get there. A few more minutes. Historically, the church has been so good about calling people on the sex one and judging those who fail in that area. But we've been so afraid to say anything about the money one or to judge anyone failing in this area. But Hebrews here just levels them side by side, one right after the other, sex and money. Jesus himself said a lot about money, didn't he? Because Jesus knew it's oh so easy to fall in love with money. And all the more so when we're being squeezed, when prices are rising, when our friend's spouse is out of work and we're wondering if our spouse is going to be next. It's so easy to start socking money away, to hold on to money, to find our security in money. But Hebrews says, don't do it. Don't look to money for security. That's not how family operates. No, family helps one another and shares what they have with one another. You see, what you need during tough times more than money is you need relationships. You need family to help you get through. And so here's what you need to do to keep your heart straight and your priorities straight when it comes to money. Remember, remind yourself regularly that you have a God who sees you and promises to take care of you. As God said way back in Deuteronomy 31, this is verse 5 or 6 now, never will I leave you, God says, never will I forsake you. And now verse 6, and so we say with confidence, like the psalmist did in Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can mere mortals do to me? We've got to believe that. We've got to lean into God, to trust God, if we're going to treat one another like family, especially when it comes to our money. And all the more so during tough and trying times. There are plenty of people in the world who, when they get squeezed, they hoard, they grasp at money, they stress over investments, they bicker and snipe at both loved ones and enemies, they look for cheap distractions to feel better for a moment, but that's not who we are, because we are family, we are God's family. We don't have to grasp at financial capital because we have lots of social capital. Our family looks out for one another. And we have a father over our family who loves us, who will never leave us nor forsake us, and who is our helper so that we will not be afraid. After all, what can mortals, mere mortals, do to us? unfriend us on Facebook, troll us on Twitter, be nasty to us, fire us from a job. Sure, these things hurt. They scare us. But even when we're squeezed, we've got a family who loves us and a God who has promised to take care of us and to be and to give us an eternal future. So question, as we close, what does it look like for you to live into the vision of family, the vision of brotherly and sisterly love that Hebrews is giving us here? What's the growing edge for you? Is it extending hospitality, opening your heart, your home, your time and energy to others? Or is it remembering those suffering in prison or being mistreated? being there for them and with them? Or is it keeping the marriage bed pure, treating all those outside of marriage with purity as brothers and sisters? Or lastly, is it keeping yourself from the love of money and being content with what you have, sharing your money and what God's blessed you with with those in need? For you... What does it look like to prioritize social capital over financial capital? Because prioritizing social capital, building social capital, and being family to one another is basic New Testament Christianity. And so it's who we want to be as a church. It's who we are, but we've got still growing to do. We haven't all arrived yet. And so we want to keep growing this way more and more, to keep learning to love one another as brothers and sisters. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a good father to us. And often the way you want to care for us is you put what we need in the hands of a brother or sister. And you tell your children, to share with one another. Some of us um, don't know other people in this congregation very well yet. It doesn't feel like family. Help us to form relationships. Help us to pull up those roots that money grows in our hearts so that we can be a generous people like you are a generous God. Thank you that you are so generous to us. In Jesus' name.